You're listening to The Globalist First Broadcast on the 21st of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, France's president seeks to reassure the country over a controversial new immigration bill. We'll examine whether he succeeded. Also coming up, is Japan just about to become Ukraine's secret military backer? We'll look at a plan to offer support via the US. Plus... The number of people aged over 65 is projected to reach 2.1 billion by 2050. So it is important that cities are prepared for when those numbers become real. But how do city planners create a strategy as our populations grow older? We'll hear about an alternative to Vienna's New Year's Day concert and... What are you doing? I'm making chocolate, of course. How do you like it? I don't know. I've never had any. You've never had chocolate? Still, no. The festive films on offer. Karen Krasanovich will give her highlights. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Thousands of people have taken to the streets of Buenos Aires in the first big protest against the new Argentine government's economic policies. North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un has said Pyongyang will not hesitate to launch a nuclear attack if an enemy provokes it with nuclear weapons. And the United Nations Security Council has delayed for a third day a vote on a suspension of fighting in Gaza. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, last night the French president appeared on television to talk to the nation about the government's new immigration law. He called it the shield that we lack. Cette loi, je le disais, c'est pour moi le bouclier qui nous manquait. En conscience, je peux vous dire que le texte qui sort est un texte qui reste utile, c'est ce bouclier dont on avait besoin et que les dispositions qui ont été acceptées même si elles ne plaisent pas ne justifiaient pas de tout bloquer. That was Emmanuel Macron last night, on uh, live on uh, national television, having a discussion about the immigration law. Well, the bill originally intended to show that Monsieur Macron could take tough measures on migration while keeping France open to foreign workers. It was refused by opposition parties from all sides at the start, so a compromise text was then drawn up, and the result was a much tougher right-wing bill. But not only has the bill pushed the country's politics and politicians to their limit, it threatens to stretch the boundaries of French law in terms of its planned treatment of migrants. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by Philippe Marlier, who's Professor of French and European Politics at University College London. A very good morning to you, Philippe. Good morning, Emma. So he called it un, un bouclier qui nous manquait, the shield that France needs. What did he mean by that? Well, that's... Uh that's a common expression in French politics. To be a shield is is to sort of enact a law or to act in a way which is protective of the of the interests of the nation, let's say. But I think a lot of people in France right now beg to differ. They disagree that it is indeed a shield. They see the law as the most regressive immigration bill in decades and also law which largely is is ineffective and, and unhelpful. So um, in the meantime, as you rightly uh, said in your introduction, I think it's a law which was uh, voted down in the first place. The first version of the text was voted down by a kind of a, 
de facto coalition, you know, comprising the left, uh, the main conservative party, Les Républicains, and the far right, Marine Le Pen's party. He could have left the matter there, but he, he chose instead to enter uh, in negotiations with uh, Les Républicains, the conservative party, who have shifted to the right on immigration issues. So the result is well known now. It's a, it's a hardened text, which was finally voted thanks to the support of the conservatives, but also with the support of the 88 uh, far-right MPs, and that's what puts Macron in a, in a very awkward and difficult situation today. Indeed, critics immediately said that this was a, a law that his uh, party, Renaissance, had created, but it was written with the pen of the Republicans and the extreme right. What, what does that mean? Well, it means that, as I said, an overall shift of the French political class to the right, if not the far right on immigration issues. Uh, Le Pen, uh, a jubilant Le Pen before camera cruised right after the vote, could say it's an ideological victory for our party. All the things we've been uh, advocating for the past 50 years, and of course that includes uh, her own father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, on immigration, the parliament today voted it. And, and, and in a way, I think she, she, is, she is largely right. You know, uh, you could look at the bill and, and point out that very flagship uh, policies on immigration of the far right, which so far had been sort of fought back and dismissed by the rest of, of, of uh, political parties in France, are now part of the law, notably a very controversial and um, um, provision which is called in, in, in France a national preference or national priority. It's the idea that social benefits should be allocated to, na to French nationals only. And I'm going to give you a very, uh, very clear example, um, which I think a lot of French people find very unfair. Uh, legal foreigners, people who live in France legally, but who do, do not work, will have to prove that they've been resident in France for five years before they can get family and housing benefits. So what do they do in the meantime for the five years when they uh, can't get those family and housing benefits? So it's going to make the situation of migrants uh, in France, while they're legally, for, for, for the most part, much harder for no particular po political or social gains. Where are the origins of this perceived need for tough migration laws in, in France? Well, as you know, it's a, it's an issue which really uh, is is quite um, general. Now you look around in Europe, and uh, you've just seen that, for instance, in the Netherlands, Wilders won an election with uh, this uh, policy, you know, being very hard on immigration. So it's quite common, I suppose. Uh, governments look at opinion polls, which seem to indicate that the public, by and large, would like more restrictive measures on immigration. It's very, it's a very complex issue because there are also other opinion polls which show that when it comes to uh, migrants, their integration and racism in general, the French public at large seems to be more and more tolerant and less and less racist. So very complex. Of course, if you say there's scarcity of social benefits, we need to make uh, choices. And how about the idea that those social benefits should only be given to, to us French people? Of course, you're going to have probably a majority of people responding that, yes, it is something that we should do. That's how you end up with policies which are no longer mainstream, 
Uh, and again, they've been, you know, the sort of policies which the, the far right in France have, had been promoting for the past 50 years, until now, uh, they had been dismissed. And with this law, now you have a kind of, they, they've entered the mainstream. That, that's why a lot of people are, are quite are quite short and, and, and worried about uh, about what comes next. And the, the argument is sometimes put forward, not least by either the, the far right, so that if the centre the center of politics puts forward a, a right-wing bill, it doesn't make people move to the centre, it pushes people further right. I think Jean-Marie Le Pen himself uh, summed up the, the, the situation uh, a while ago by saying, you know, in the end, uh, voters will always prefer the original to the copy, which, which means, in other words, that, you know, if you, yes, if you push forward and vote um, uh, more more restrictive uh, bills on immigration, for instance, or, or style to migrants in general, I think the, the public will get accustomed to them and we'll see, well, if mainstream's party uh, agree with that, so why not vote for the far right uh, in the first first instance? You know, there's no. So I think yeah, it's a big mistake, and I think there's a lot of uh, political science work demonstrating this, this this very point that if you custom voters to more and more restrictive and hostile policies against migrants, in the end, it's the far right which benefits from them. And indeed, I mean. How much does this now place Emmanuel Macron in a difficult position? I mean, he not only went on television last night to reassure France, and it's sort of quite a major television event to talk about what was going on and to say, you know, this is actually, a, 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 we're defeating the, the Rassemblement National because there's nothing from the, the far-right party in the law. But there then sort of it followed an enormous evening where people picked the bill apart if you go back to the beginning of, of, of Macron's term as president, first term, he was bringing in technocrats. He was taking a practical, almost uh, a political solutions from all parts, you know, all, all areas of the political spectrum. How much has things like immigration now forced Macron to, to actually respond to campaigning as opposed to taking a clear, cool view? I think it's a big blow to, to Macron's credibility as a president which was uh, who was positioned in, in, in the political centre, you know, a little bit on the centre-left, a little bit on the centre-right. That was part of Macron's political appeal uh, when he was elected in 2017. I think he seems to have lost that because of his shift uh, to the right. So he, he lost his left wing, so to speak. But I think what, what looks pretty bad for him is that he's got... His own party is deeply unhappy about this bill. Uh, one minister only resigned. And, but we know that other MPs, uh, 60 of them, by the way, voted against the bill, which is the highest uh, figure uh, in terms of a position uh, coming from his own ranks. But the party as a whole is unhappy, doesn't understand the, the, the bill, why it was voted in the first place. And a lot of people think now he, he caved in to uh, Les Républicains, who are one our position very much on the right on a number of issues and also he was elected let's not forget that as a kind of the french call that a dam against the far right you know kind of barrage he was elected a lot of left-wing voters for instance voted twice for him in a second round not because they wanted to 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 support him but because they didn't want the far right to win so and he said well i I take this on board. I understand that some people do not like me voted for me nonetheless. And now, of course, he's reminded that 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 thing. And uh, 
so in a way, yes, his position is is, is much weakened because uh, he's going to have a party. His hold on 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 his own party will be will be weakened. Uh, he's probably emboldened further the far right, and Les Républicains now he doesn't have a majority in the National Assembly. So let's wait for new debates um, uh, and new bills, where again uh, the right and the far right will blackmail uh, further Macron. Uh, uh, demanding from him that he, he makes uh, further concessions on on important issues, so it's not a very good position for Macron to be in at the moment. Philippe Marlier, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to the Globalist. in Tokyo, 7.13am here in London. Now, could Japan fill an essential gap in the West's ability to furnish Ukraine with weapons? Tokyo is expected to formalise a change in policy that will enable it to export several dozen Patriot missiles to the United States. That's a move that would backfill Washington's stockpiles and the US would be granted flexibility to send more of its sophisticated air defences to Ukraine. Well, joining me now from Tokyo is Tomohiko Taniguchi. He's a foreign policy specialist who formerly served as special advisor to the late Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Good afternoon to you, Tomohiko. Good afternoon, Emma. So just explain to us, how would this plan work? I think it is a novel regime under which the United States-led allies, such as Japan, jointly manage their inventories of weapons as a whole, passing them from countries that have a surplus to those that lack them in order to achieve optimal distribution. That's a sensible move uh, behind the context that uh, Ukraine is consuming a lot of weapons daily. Where did the idea come from? The idea has come from both ends, the United States and Japan. Obviously, the United States has urged Japan on a number of occasions to do just like this. And from the Japanese end, uh, discussions have been going on since 19, 2014 that uh, Japanese uh, products of weaponry uh, should be exported more uh, to uh, optimize the economy of scale uh, in the Japanese uh, defense-related industry. So uh, this is a combination of uh, two uh, uh, different uh, streams. So this is a, a formal change in policy. I mean, um, how much support is there in Japan for something like this? You may be surprised at uh, the amount of opposition, which is not big. Uh, I think the Japanese public have uh, can, uh, have digested that uh, this is a sensible uh, a sensible decision uh, that's um, that's fit to the uh, recent uh, reality in the security uh, situation around Japan and in the world. Do people in Japan believe that this would leave enough distance between Tokyo and Kyiv? I mean, sending missiles to America is one thing, but knowing that doing that um, allows the United States to continue its support for Ukraine, it, it does drag Tokyo in somewhat to the, to the huge issue, doesn't it? It truly does. Uh, I think uh, in that sense, Tokyo has chosen to take uh, more risks. But uh, this is a natural extension of the direction that Tokyo has chosen to follow since the um, uh, since February 2022. 
uh, when uh, Russia invaded in uh, Ukraine. Uh, Japan has been uh, a full supporter of the sanctioned regime that the G7 countries uh, as a group have um, uh, imposed upon uh, uh, Russia. Um, there's also the regional implications as well, that having seen what Russia has done in Ukraine, there is a, a regional, in fact, there's a global concern, isn't there, about what China could do against Taiwan. How much is this a factor? It is uh, one of the biggest factors, I have to say, because Japan's neighborhood is one of the most uh, precarious. You've got uh, Russia, North Korea, China, all lining up in your immediate neighborhood, all proclaiming that uh, they are opposed to US-Japan alliance, and they are also educating the young people to hate uh, some of those countries, um, South Korea, Japan, the United States. Uh, so uh, it is all the more sensible uh, for Japan to be very much careful and concerned about the uh, security equation in the region. And what will this do for Japan's reputation in the region, knowing that it is taking much more emboldened steps? Japan has never been actually a neutral country. Japan's been uh, the one of the staunchest uh, allies of the United States. That's been known to China, North Korea and Russia. And uh, they need no um, further telling uh, from the Japanese side that Japan is taking these sorts of uh, steps. Tomohiko Taniguchi, thank you so much for joining us as ever on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's program. Well, who are you? I told you, George, I'm your guardian angel. What is it you want, Mary? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hankies at the Ready will be celebrating the best of the Christmas movies on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio, I am delighted to say, is Latika Burke, journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. Welcome back, Latika. Good, Good morning, to see you. Emma. The countdown to Christmas is on. Well, I think one of the glorious things today for the Brits is that it is the shortest day today, which means I would imagine that in Australia it might be the longest. Twenty um, first. I'm guessing that would be the, the the truth, but that just means we're meant to be thoroughly depressed yes, today. Yes, downhill all the way for right. you. Bikinis for us. So tomorrow. it's peaked already. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, don't worry. You're in London. It can only get better. Um, tell us what's in the papers. <laughs> well, I'm rather struck by this very interesting interview that uh, Laura Dubois of the Financial Times in Brussels has conducted 
with um, uh, the Belgian justice minister. And this follows on from a story that the FT did last week where they exposed essentially a Flemish far-right politician as a Chinese intelligence asset. Well, Paul van uh, Tijgeld, who is the country's justice minister, has told the FT today that Frank uh, Kreilerman was long suspected of being used by foreign regimes. In fact, as far back as 2018, they received the first tip that he may be in cahoots with the Chinese. But they actually didn't have any such law to go and prosecute him. And so the Attorney General at the time deemed that no crime, uh, there was no case for any crime having being committed. And so this really does go to the heart of how various countries have failed or not to update their legal systems to deal with very new ways of dealing with foreign interference. Because in Belgium's case, the only way it was deemed that you could have been compromised by an asset was if it was relating to military service. And of course, this guy was a politician. I mean, I'm not entirely sure whether it's just not Belgium's fault for not reading a few more spy novels and realising that actually you can still have a good old-fashioned spy operating in a country and it doesn't need to be a, mil- a military asset. It. And and I, I'm, I was quite surprised by this because I thought that actually most countries would clearly have some sort of indication of spying. So I was wondering whether it made the, the Belgians an unusually trusting lot. Well, I think more dysfunctional may be the <laughs> word you were looking for there, Emma. But you don't even have to read spy novels. Of course, it is seemingly obvious that this is a way that people would, would seek to interfere in democracy and various countries' activities. But you only have to look at countries like Australia because... Many years prior to 2018, we were actually introducing uh, foreign interference laws to deal with exactly this. And we had very similar cases in Australia where politicians were being compromised by Chinese donors, uh, by very wealthy Chinese figures. And the intelligence agencies, with the help of the media, exposed some of that as has been the case with this in Belgium. Uh, But much, much later to the party, it appears. Now, Europe, uh, the EU, is actually trying to introduce foreign interference laws similar to Australia's. And the UK only uh, this year, I think, passed its similar laws. So countries are doing a lot of catch-up to deal with where the emerging threats are. Uh, What I find quite interesting also is that this man was only... um stripped of his party affiliation last week. Yes, because this only was exposed by actually three newspapers. It was uh, Le Monde, Spiegel and uh, the, the FT who altogether uncovered a tranche of messages that really did expose just how Kralerman was working in cahoots with the Chinese. That's when the party uh, strips him of his membership. That's actually quite similar to events in Australia. It took a long time and a lot of public humiliation before some party figures were actually kicked out of their political sites. Of course, you've got to be innocent until proven guilty in our systems, and so that has a role to play. But it does show how our own democracies can be used against us at times if we're not alive to the threats and updating and keeping uh, the way that the law can respond to these new sorts of threats constantly refreshed. Let's move to possibly the most middle-class Brexity headline that the Times has managed to drum up in a very, very, very long time. Second homeowners win right to stay in France for up to six months. Britons are jubilant, but France's highest court could still overrule the Parliament's decision. (laughs) Well, Emma, I thought 
this might entertain some Monocle listeners as well as Times readers, because you're right. It is a very uh, middle class issue, shall we say. But if you have a second home in France, as, as many people do and have done in, and enjoyed since before Brexit, um, obviously your holidaying adventures were tipped upside down a little when uh, the people of the United Kingdom voted to Brexit in 2016. Um, That has meant, of course, that you can't just hop over the channel and stay there for as long as you like. You are now restricted to 90 days in France for every 180-day period. Well, 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 France has had a look at this and decided that they will vote to allow uh, people staying in the country for up to six months without a visa. So you could spend your entire summer and, what, spring? In a, in a house in, normally in the in north France. of France, which looks an awful lot like the south of England. Well, look, I mean, I'm not uh, British yet. Um, I will be getting my citizenship next week, and uh, next two weeks, Emma. But this has been one of the peculiarities of the British people that continues to mystify me as to why something exotic is so close to home. It's absolutely astonishing as far as that this is now one of those moments when obviously the the Times is having a little bit of a poke at the French (laughs) for saying actually they could stop us Brits having all that fun after we decided to leave Europe. (laughs) There's nasty French people. Um, But also there's a a sort of a wider thing with lots of European countries now having a look at actually attracting foreign people. I mean, Portugal is struggling, isn't it, with with the cost of living, house prices rocketing up. And up until I think I think very, very soon they will stop this um, sort of golden visa, the sort of golden ticket plan, which allows that if you invest a certain amount of money in the country, then you can then you can get some some sort of like toehold on citizenship. Um, it it is this really odd piecemeal approach now that the European Union has to approach to, to take when it comes to what is clearly a really important economic benefit, which is British tourism. And not just tourism. I mean, you're seeing lots of interesting ideas like digital nomad visas spark up. I think Portugal is one of those that that is doing that. And that's got to be very highly enticing for a Brit stuck in gloomy uh, weather, wondering if they can just take their laptop with them and with the rise of remote working, no one needs to know exactly where they are. And you'll see a lot of companies now advertise, you know, you have the right to spend X amount of months in whatever country you like as long as you're you're hitting your KPIs. So I think we're only going to see a lot more of that. And I think as time goes on and Brexit continues to uh, leach out of the bloodstream of Britain a little, we will see a lot more closer cooperation with the EU. And that's something that the Labour Party has already flagged they'd like to see. Now, whether the European Union, in terms of Brussels, wants to play ball on that, I I have some hesitation and doubts. But I do think you're right, Emma, in identifying that actually it's going to be the individual countries who want a bit of Brit back and will say, come on over and here's a new scheme for you. Let's talk about um, Switzerland and cocaine. Um, Switzerland has one of the highest levels of cocaine use in Europe. Um, If you look at the wastewater of Zurich, Basel, Geneva, they're all in the top 10 cities of of amounts of cocaine sloshing around in the water. Uh, And the Swiss have quite a strict um, policy when it comes to dealing with people and their use of cocaine. But there are now suggestions of trying to sort of loosen things off a little. Yes, so the capital Bern, authorities there or the parliament there, is looking at introducing a pilot scheme to allow the sale of cocaine for recreational use. Now, I think 
that is pretty much the first jurisdiction to float this idea. And if it comes off, will be very, very closely watched by a lot of jurisdictions around the world. We have already seen, of course, big moves in some US states and across the world to legalise cannabis. Um, and those those measures have been largely copied. You know, they, they are expanding, they are growing rather than, than being shut down. But cocaine is a different kettle of fish, and this one uh, would need the city's approval, so it's not through yet. But um, the argument here is that the war on drugs has not worked, says, uh, according to Eva Chen, a member of the Byrne Council from the Alternative Left Party who is co-sponsoring this proposal. And they want to see if actually legalising it will make any sort of difference uh, to re- repression or repression tactics and repression measures. So some might say this will be the start of a slippery slope, Emma, but there's no doubt about it. This would be hugely, hugely pioneering. And as I say, very closely watched. And I think you would see jurisdictions uh, like the city of Sydney in Australia want to have a look at this. I mean, Sydney's got a very strong track record. It in- introduced, I think, the well, first legalised heroin injecting room, which really did actually stop um, heroin overdoses and deaths on the streets. So this could be the start of something very, very new across the Western world. Let's take a book. Thank you so much, as ever, for joining us in the studio. The time here in London is 7.29. A quick look now on Monocle Radio at the latest headlines. Thousands of people have taken to the streets of Buenos Aires in the first big protest against the new Argentine government's economic policies. The march was led by groups who represent the unemployed. President Javier Mille announced measures that include spending cuts and a drastic currency devaluation. North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un says Pyongyang will not hesitate to launch a nuclear attack if an enemy provokes it with nuclear weapons. Kim made the remark as he met soldiers working for the military's missile bureau and congratulated them over Pyongyang's recent launching drill of an intercontinental ballistic missile. The United Nations Security Council has delayed for a third day a vote on a suspension of fighting in Gaza. Intense negotiations are continuing in the hope that the US will finally back a resolution which will also see more humanitarian aid reaching the people who desperately need it. The delay came as Hamas said 20,000 people have now died in Gaza since Israel launched its military offensive following the 7th of October Hamas attacks. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, all this week on The Globalist, we've been exploring the implications of ageing populations around the world. And today we examine the implications for cities and urban centres. Monocle's head of radio, Tom Edwards, sat down with the senior foreign correspondent and producer of The Urbanist, Carlotta Ribello, to look at how cities are preparing for rapidly ageing populations. And Tom began by asking Carlotta about the challenges and potential opportunities this presents for urban planning. So including age-friendly city design is quite crucial that city halls start including that in their plans and that private developers also start to embrace that. You know, Tom, according to the United Nations, the number of people aged over 65 is projected to reach 2.1 billion by 2050. That's more than double of the current number. So it is quite a rapidly aging population and it is important that cities 
are prepared for when those numbers become real. Now, there's perhaps this uh, idea that creating an age-friendly city is about, you know, treating the aging population as vulnerable or uh, making sure there's a false prevention program, which, of course, is something that exists in some cities, but actually it goes way beyond that. Loads of studies around the world show that, um, you know, having a vibrant cultural life and access to transport is quite vital to everyone's mental health, including for those age 65 and over, and can contribute significantly to their health overall, you know. And when we think about age-friendly design, we're talking about anything from high-quality housing, and that goes from, you know, the design process to builders to greenery to landscaping to also making sure people can move around the city in an efficient, safe and clean manner. So there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, Well, yeah. And what about property development specifically, Carlotta? Because presumably uh, there are certain uh, geographies or demographies or cultural divisions globally where multi-generational living, for example, is much more uh, common. And obviously that affords much better structure and security and uh, care for older people. But in societies where there isn't that tradition, is it possible to design in fixes, whether that's in Uh, property development, residential planning, so that you can sort of offer the same support, even if the cultural family intergenerational support isn't there? Well, absolutely. And it's quite interesting that you mention that uh, inter-multi-generational living. We know that particularly in the Nordic countries, that's a model that's quite easily adopted and widespread. We've seen across some Southern European nations as well, I know that Portugal, Spain and Italy have trialled this with university housing in order to be able to, you know, find a fix to the housing shortage for students. They've implemented these programmes where by living with someone who's older, retired, you have this intergenerational mix with an exchange of, of course, of having not only cheaper or housing for the university students, but then you have uh, this company as well for the older generation. But for example, there's uh, in Japan, it's quite normal for um, residential encouragement zones to be created, REZ. So those are basically high density planned cities where you have public facilities, living quarters, health facilities all together. So instead of having multi-generational, it's aimed at a specific community. So in a way, you're able to engineer and plan for all these things that we were talking about, accessibility, ease of transport, having all those services around you. And if this sounds like a great idea, it's perhaps because it touches upon the very inverted commas, controversial topic of the 15-minute city. One of the many benefits of the concept of the 15-minute city, which is often talked about, you know, for young parents moving around the city or those without a car, but the same can be applied to those who are above the age of 65, that, you know, trips are shorter, you're often within the neighbourhood, often they're anchored within their local community. So, Developing a 15-minute city can be very important for this, for not only supporting local businesses, but bringing that sense that you can have everything ready at your doorstep. Well, you mentioned younger residents there, and I guess the the flip side of these ageing populations in big urban centres is the lack of younger residents. We've seen lots of urban flight, haven't we, with younger families moving out to the country. That was particularly true, certainly here in the UK during the the pandemic. But many cities now realise that they need to also support younger populations, 
potentially younger families as well. And that can have all peripheral benefits, can't it? There, there's an attendant benefit for older people if there are younger people coming in. What are some of the ways that cities are looking to actually lure younger families back or keep them in closer to the city centre? So it's interesting because it really depends where you look, uh, you look at in the world. Um, some cities are trying to, of course, retain younger uh, families as a lot of them end up moving out when the families is expanding and they need to buy property and prices simply are unaffordable in uh, the big cities of today. But what's interesting here, Tom, is how some local governments, particularly, again, across the Mediterranean nations, Portugal, Spain, Italy, and also Greece, uh, are actually trying to get people, younger couples, to move to rural areas. Now, these are areas that are traditionally inhabited by older generations where you need that multi-generational mix and you need vibrant young families to keep businesses alive, to bring new ideas and also to take out some of the pressure from the urban cores. Now, a lot of these rural areas in most of these countries are well connected and in close proximity to big metropolitan areas. So it all kind of becomes one and contributes to the wider region. Uh, Some of these nations have incentives to, you know, adults under uh, 45 years old, for example, will receive up to 25,000 Swiss francs to move to the town of Verbier in, in Switzerland. And that's to try to get people to move to the Swiss Alpine town that only has 250 residents. So you can see how, you know, adding a handful of families will make a significant difference while it still remains quite a small rural area. So as we are aging, both of us, Tom, not just me, perhaps the city can become a bit more friendly for us. So we shall see. That was Monocle's senior foreign correspondent, Carlotta Rebello, talking to Tom Edwards a little earlier. You're with Monocle Radio. Now, the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra's televised New Year's Day concert is a staple of Austria, indeed, the global cultural calendar. For many younger Austrians, however, it's too staid and conservative, to say nothing of its troubled past. The first concert was held on New Year's Eve in 1939 as a fundraiser for the Nazi Party. But the concert's association with Nazism is not the only problem with its reputation. It's also never been conducted by a woman. Monocle's Alexei Koryolov, who's in Vienna, met the leader of a choir who's decided to right this wrong and stage her own New Year's event. It's a huge tradition, especially when you grow up with music, and it's internationally very well recognised. So I think it's something that Austria is um, seeing as a representation of their art, culture and music scene. And when I watched it, I didn't feel represented at all. Like the Vienna Philharmonic itself, its New Year's concert is not to everybody's taste. And that's quite apart from its dark Nazi history. It represents um, classical music that is only written by men. The audience is rather older, so it doesn't really address younger people. And also, like it starts with the ballet that is dancing. Their bodies are so stereotypically very thin. And I would just really like to have a stage and a representation of Austria that is more the Austria that I am living and I am experiencing. And I think this New Year's concert is excluding 
a lot of people that are actually defining Austrian's culture scene and uh, music scene. and I'm the conductor and leader of Schmusiko. Schmusiko, or the Kissing and Cuddling Choir, started small in 2014. But its embrace of queerness, its expressive dress and its catchy repertoire soon made it famous, and not just in liberal Vienna, but also, surprisingly, in Austria's conservative hinterland. So we only do pop songs that we really like. It reaches from Billie Eilish over David Bowie to Aretha Franklin, Miley Cyrus is coming now. It's so many different songs, like sometimes we also do theater projects, for example, with this immersive queer theater group called Nesterwall. We did a few uh, theater projects together and then we came up with songs there or the director was wishing for songs that we would be singing for the theater project. And now, for example, Golden Age by Woodkid or Grande Amore by Il Voglio, it's like an Italian group, are two songs that we learned for a theater production, but now they're like our favorites. And we definitely want to build some references to the New Year's concert. So the Donawalzer is something that is so traditional. They play this song now every year since 84 years. So we definitely do something with that. But I can promise already that we are bringing it more into a 2024 than the New Year's concert is doing it. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexi Korolov. And that was Alexei Koryolov reporting there from Vienna. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Join Monocle every weekday and let the briefing guide and inspire you through uncertain times, always keeping you ahead of the curve. Hear razor-sharp insights and opinion from Monocle's bureau and correspondents, as well as a lineup of brilliant minds from around the world. It's devolving to a point where we're at odds with each other, instead of letting our political leaders do the dirty work, so to speak. Heavyweight coverage, no white noise, and always delivered with a smile. I think the grey areas lead to a lot of sort of awkward conversations, and there's nothing the English dislike more than awkward conversations. Keep your appointment with The Briefing every weekday at 1300 CET, noon in London and 7am in New York City, here on Monocle Radio.
7.43 here in London, but let's head to Dubai as we find out what's been making the headlines in the UAE with Mustafa Al-Rawi, Acting Managing Director at CNN Business Arabic in Dubai. A very good morning to you, Mustafa. Good morning, Emma. Uh, has everybody calmed down after COP now? Has, has, you know, has everything been put back in the drawers and the sweeping done? Absolutely. I mean, COP28 was mega, mega. I mean, that's the only word I can describe for it. It was uh, a huge amount of people dealing with obviously the crisis of our generation. But it's kind of done now and it feels like if you live here, it almost didn't happen, which is very strange. How amazing. Thank you for that, Mustafa. Um, Right, bring us up to date with what stories are now making the headlines where you are. So the conflicts, uh, the main conflicts of of, of, of this year, uh, Gaza, obviously, and the Ukraine, uh, or the, the conflict in Ukraine, And the UAE um, has been taking uh, a humanitarian approach to both of these conflicts. And and we have some news uh, with Ukraine, for example, of uh, the UAE sending generators. It's part of a $100 million commitment to provide aid. They had sent some ambulances before. And at the same time, they're bringing wounded and sick Palestinians from Gaza to be treated here in the UAE as well, including children and cancer patients. And so it's, it's kind of a interesting position that the UAE finds itself in. It tries to politically remain sort of neutral, if you like, if that's even possible in today's world, but at the same time to really uh, impact um, some of the suffering that's that's happening because of these conflicts. I mean, for example, uh, the UAE set up a field hospital in Gaza, a surgical field hospital, and has been trying um, to also uh, provide aid on the humanitarian side in the, in the Ukraine, which is, you know, Obviously, the, the people on, in, in both those conflicts are, are the priority. It has an enormous generous spirit as, as a result. But how much does the UAE risk being dragged into a political conflict here if, by its, in its participation? So the, the, on both sides, I mean, and I think this will apply to any conflict that happens today. There, there is obviously a groundswell from both sides of every conflict to uh, rally as many voices, as many countries, as many supporters to their side. And, and, you know, as you will know, working in the media, things are so polarized that it, it almost feels like if you're not with us, you're against us in any situation. So it's, it's, been, it's been really delicate. And, and, and for Gaza in particular, I can't overestimate how this conflict has resonated with the people living in the UAE. Um, you know, ordinary people are, are giving up their time to do, um, you know, to pack aid boxes. Um, you know, people line up uh, to get their turn just to feel like they're doing something. And I'm sure in, in Europe, it's the same when it comes to Ukraine as well. And so it, it's affecting us day to day. And the fact that the government is doing its best to alleviate some of the hardship, even if politically we, we're not any closer to a solution for these conflicts, at least this is, is something that recognizes the realities. There is also um, the UAE sending a hundred tons of power generators to, to Ukraine. So this is, you know, tell us a little bit more about that. So uh, at the end of October uh, 2022, um, the UAE president, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, ordered a hundred million dollars worth of aid to be committed towards the Ukrainians. And this had come after uh, several months of diplomacy uh, that the UAE had been trying to conduct 
not only with the Ukrainians, but with the, the Russians and Vladimir Putin as well, to try and help find some kind of resolution. And actually, you know, if we're talking geopolitics more broadly, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, these Gulf countries that have relationships with both sides have been trying to act as as honest brokers as you can get, given that the usual honest brokers in, in any conflict, particularly the Middle East, like the US or Europe, um, are on the Ukrainian side. So they don't have much influence over the Russians. So the UAE getting involved in the humanitarian area allows them to also have the diplomatic channels to be able to try and, and, and help find a resolution together with other nations. What leverage do they have? Well, leverage in, in the sense of, of energy, I and mean, if we talk specifically about these generators and we talk about the reconstruction of Ukraine that, that will come once this conflict is over, um, Ukraine will need reliable and steady energy partners. Of course, Russia had been its energy supplier, as it was for, for Europe. And so energy suppliers like the UAE, UAE has the seventh largest oil and gas reserves, for example, um, have, has that kind of leverage, and particularly in the post-COP28 world where we need cleaner energy, more sustainable energy, and and the kind of energy that the UAE produces, that that in, a, in of itself does provide some some leverage going forward. But I don't I don't want to over-egg this and say that that's enough leverage to, to result in ending the conflict. I think there's a long way to go. Let's um, look at more local affairs and the fact that if you're going to buy an apartment in Dubai, you better dig a bit deeper in your pocket. Yeah, and actually it's not completely unrelated to what we were just talking about because um, the property prices in Dubai have hit, I think, a nine-year peak. Um, and particularly apartments. And we've seen villas and houses go up, but now apartments, there's more supply of them, um, uh, is also rising to record levels. And, and really, this is driven by a population boom um, in in Dubai, in the UAE. And, and in particular, it's been well documented. I think we've talked about it as well, about the number of Russians that came to Dubai after the, the Ukraine conflict started and, some, and the difficulty for them, particularly sort of upper middle class Russians and wealthier Russians of living uh, in Europe now, they've come. They've come to Dubai, but actually, that's only part of the story. People are coming from everywhere, and anecdotally, I can tell you, a lot of people are leaving Britain and coming here as well, um, given the lifestyle on offer. And what's that resulted in? Obviously, pressure on rents. But then, people, when the rents are going up and up, people are saying, "Well, I might as well buy." They buy houses first, and then now they're buying apartments. But I mean, just to just to counter this, is not to, it's not a rah rah thing to come and buy the property. Usually, this means that it's kind of towards the end of the peak when the apartment prices start reaching record levels. And, I, and is this people who are moving over permanently or are this people who are just based for one or two years? So people will move here and probably rent. And then the people who are already here who are seeing their rents go up and, and when they renew every year, maybe even being forced to leave their apartments because of the inflation, then decide to buy. So there's a knock-on effect. I think realistically, most people don't move here and then buy in the first two years. But those who've been here already and have been looking for a reason to buy will do. And actually, given, I mean, even though mortgage rates have been higher because of high interest rates, the demographic situation means that it's better to buy even at higher rates and hope those rates will come down than to live in kind of on your, um, on your toes with the rental market that is really, really volatile. Mustafa Al-Rawi, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist.
finally on today's show from family-friendly classics to snowy spin-offs, many of us are looking forward to viewing our favourite Christmas films as we edge closer to the holiday season. I'm joined here in the studio by film critic and Monocle Radio regular Karen Krasanovic. Karen, it's lovely to see you. And it's that time of year where we do look for something to do on a cold afternoon and the cinema is the place that we often head. I mean, what is its attraction? I think what's important is that there is a Christmas vein of things that people look for. In fact, my partner said to me the other day, I'd really like to watch a Christmas movie. Is there something wrong with me? And I think we're just looking for a little bit of comfort. And that's what a Christmas movie should give us. Not only the spirit of generosity and and being grateful for things, but also some bitterness and some laughs. Well, yes. I mean, we do love a little bit of bitterness and laughs. And we also quite like madcap fun as well. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that you say that there are, you know, there are certain traits common to a Christmas movie. If you're looking right back to It's a Wonderful Life, it is that community, sense of family, sense of spirit. Uh, But it has to be packaged correctly, doesn't it? Because people get it right and people get it wrong. So let's talk about the people who get it right first. I think that's good. Okay, imagine you've just landed from Mars and you say, okay, show me a Christmas movie. Which one are you pointing me to? Ooh, that's a tough one. Well, what Martians wouldn't know is that Christmas movies are about escapism, but also about escaping and then looking back at our lives. So what I really like about the Hallmark Christmas films, they're always based in Europe. Which, for Americans, that's really great escapism. Europe got, is a quintessentially Christmassy place. It's, it's where Christmas was invented. <laughs> it would focus on Rome or Vienna or Switzerland, Belgium, Scotland, and also London. There are some really lovely films. For example, It's a Wonderful Life. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it, and it all dissolves, see? And the moonbeams that shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. And watch it on the big screen, because when you see it on the big screen, you just think, wow, this is the movie I've been just not watching properly for my entire life. Um, Home Alone. When the McAllister family left on their Christmas vacation... Did we miss the flight? No, you just made it. Yeah! They forgot one small thing. Have yourself. I have a terrible feeling. Did you lock up? Yeah. Do we set the timers on the lights? Mm hmm. What else could we be forgetting? Our troubles will be ours. Kevin! Ah! Home alone. Elf. Miracle on 34th Street, Christmas Carol, 1951 or 1984. And the Muppet Christmas Carol. And, of course, the Muppet Christmas Carol. Who cannot watch the Muppet Christmas Carol and feel their cockles warm? That would be my number one. The Muppet Christmas Carol. I'll drink to Mr. Scrooge, even though he is odious, stingy, and badly dressed. Humbug. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug. This year's offering, however, we have Wonka. What are you doing? I'm making chocolate, of course. How do you like it? I don't know. I've never had any. You've never had chocolate? Still, no. Well, lucky for you, Noodle, I have a selection of the world's finest ingredients right here in my travel factory. Whoa. Which is... It's in the vein of, well, it comes from the same director as Paddington. Yes. And Paddington 2. We have seen it, and my view of it was that if you've seen Paddington 1 on 2, you've seen Wonka, because 
this plot's kind of the same. Well, Hollywood, making successful films, you can either take a risk or you can give the audience what it loved before with a few tweaks. And I think that that's what what Wonka's about. But it's, I mean, Timothy Chalamet can do no wrong, really. He is, he's sort of the major player right now. And everybody loves Wonka because they love the the fun, the frivolity. Now, you're a Roald Dahl fan. Big fan. Big fan. Grew up with Roald Dahl with that British viciousness. Now, is there enough British viciousness in this? No, there isn't. Uh. It's quite cleanly washed. And yes, it does have the the sort of a slight snarkiness. And people come to no good at the end and they don't need redeeming, which is always uh, quite fun. But Roald Dahl was scathing and and had a slight, I don't know, if you've watched Matilda, for example, that doesn't hold back and that isn't afraid to be quite comically cruel, but not in a way that, you know, anything, you come out feeling unpleasant about it. I wasn't sure where Wonka was. So, I, it, look, if you've got that afternoon where you're all scratching each other's eyes out, go and see Wonka, I would say, for the simple reason is that it's not a bad film and you will laugh and smile in all the right places. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And I'm glad that you gave it a, a second a second glance. There. What would you else would you go and tell us to go and see? I really love Alexander Payne's The Holdovers. Now, it's about a teacher in a public school where the children are, well, four of the students uh, have nowhere to go over Christmas, so they're all stuck in this big boarding school. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. No, it's... uh, I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. I'm supposed to go to Cornell. Joy Devine Randolph, who is... From uh, Only Murders in the Building, she's the detect, she's the detective or the chief of police, and it is a remarkable film. It's it's beautiful, it's heartwarming, it's it's silly, it's a throwback to a to the seventies vibe, and it's really worth seeing. And it does have the Christmas elements that we like. It's got it's got a look back at, at a tragedy. It has a look at um, things gone wrong in people's lives, and also has a lot of goofy comedy. Karen Krasanovich, thank you, and happy Christmas. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to our guests and to the producers, Laura Kramer, Emma Searle, Tom Webb, and our researcher was Naoma Ekwe, and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London. On the briefing, well, they'll be covering uh, the sale of Matches Fashion to Fraser's Group, and Prada acquires a Fifth Avenue building as well. Dana Thomas will be talking to us about that. And Fernanda Agosta-Pacheco will be here with a global countdown, the destination, ladies and gentlemen is still a mystery. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. Hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>